Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, you have made a people for yourself through Jesus Christ. Lord, you have adopted us into your family and made us a part of your people through Jesus Christ. Lord, we were once far off and separated from you. It's in Christ. And of the love you've expressed to us in Christ and the power of salvation that you have accomplished through Christ. Lord, that we are a part of your people. Thank you, Lord. May that never grow cold on us. Lord, this morning, may we continue to worship you, Lord, which is the posture of humility and thankfulness and love for you. All for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Joy to uh, be with you this morning. Pastor Jeremy, thank you for reading through God's Word. We're going to have the privilege this morning of diving down into this great text in Ephesians chapter 2. And really for the next two weeks, this is where we're going to be in 11 through 22, the end of this incredible chapter of Ephesians. And I want to say again, kind of what Pastor Daniel said at the beginning, it's good to be with you this morning. It's good to have the privilege of gathering and worshiping. And Uh, If you are new, we want to welcome you, and I want to invite you to jump in as we walk through the book of Ephesians together. Uh, If you're new, you may not know there are a ton of resources available, uh, reading plans and study Bibles and all kinds of things to help you get the most out of this great New Testament book of Ephesians. So I encourage you to jump in with us as we continue to walk through this great book together as God's family. We're going to be in verse 11 uh, in just a minute, and then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together this morning as church family and kind of 
really to set up what we're going to look at. I want to take you back to an event and a moment in the ministry of Jesus. There was a moment in the ministry of Jesus where the Bible tells us in Matthew that some scribes came to him, that's experts in Jewish law, and the Bible says that they came to trick Jesus, to trap Jesus. Uh, That never goes well, by the way, tried to trick the omnipotent Son of God. They come, they try to trick Jesus, and the Bible says you don't have to turn there, it just says they came to him and they asked him a question to test him, and they said, teacher, what is the great commandment in all the law. In other words, Jesus, if you could sum up all the law of God, what is most important or what is the great commandment? And Jesus responded, you probably know this. He said, he said to them, Matthew, this is in 22 verse 37, he said to them, you shall love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And he didn't stop there. He says, this is the first and great commandment. Then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I imagine those that tried to trick Jesus came to the conclusion that Jesus is a whole lot wiser and a whole lot smarter than I am. But Jesus, as God himself in the flesh, was declaring, here's what's most important is that we supremely love God above all things and enjoy His love as His created people and that we selflessly and sacrificially are extending that love to others. He said that's most important. You can even re-articulate it this way. You could say, as image bearers of God, we are created to know God and love God and walk in His love supremely And to selflessly is the overflow of that love other image bears as well. Jesus said that's most important. Now watch. There's a problem. There's a problem and the problem is this thing called sin. And as we've been walking through Ephesians chapter 2 in particular reminds us of the condition that every person finds themselves in because of sin and that sin separates and sin makes us dead and sin turns us into rebels toward God and it it, it hinders us from being able to love selflessly because listen and you don't have to point at anybody in the room sin makes us very selfish so there's this problem of sin that it is embedded deep in the human heart of every single person who walks on the face of the planet. Sin separates, it alienates us from God, it alienates us from others, and that's the natural condition of every human being. And you can step back and you say, man, why is the world in the condition that it's in? There's the answer. But then you come to the book of Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, just to summarize again, is writing to a community of believers, of faith-filled, Jesus-transformed followers in Ephesus, a church, a community of believers. And the book of Ephesians is declaring to us, we're chasing two big themes over the next few months. One, chapters 1 through 3, Paul declares that God has called us out of darkness, out of our spiritual deadness. He has called us out according to his purpose. 
He celebrates the grace of God, that God has provided everything necessary for what this sin has separated, how sin has left us dead. God in Christ has provided life, reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. Paul goes on, and we're going to talk more about this today, and we're going to talk more about this in the book of Ephesians. He also says not only has the grace of God, the calling of God, called us from darkness and reconciled us to God. It's also reconciled us to one another. He's now joined us in this body of faith, this thing called the body of Christ, the people of God. We're now able to love others and demonstrate that within this thing called the church. Paul lays that out here in the first few chapters of Ephesians, and then we're going to get there in several weeks. He says, now, based on this rock-solid calling of God, Walk according to this calling. Live it out. That's the glory of the gospel of what has been laid out here in the book of Ephesians of what God has done. So we come to chapter 2, and we've been there for the past few weeks. Pastor Paul has been walking us through chapter 2, and there's a, a pattern that repeats itself as Paul drives down for us to understand this calling of ours that is in Christ Jesus. There's this pattern in chapter 2, and I hope you picked up on it. And here's the pattern. It's this. Paul says, okay, I want you to know what you were before Christ. He says, I want you to know what Christ has done, and then I want you to know all that is yours now in Christ by benefit of his grace. Chapter 2, we looked at it earlier. The last couple of weeks, he says, what you were. We were dead in our sin. We were enemies. We were slaves. We were guilty. We were hopeless and helpless. That was our condition before Christ. And then verse 4, chapter 2, he says, but God. Isn't that a great phrase? I hope you never get over that phrase in the book of Ephesians. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he has made us alive together. Amen? That's good news. See, you won't read verse 4 in the fullness of its meaning without verses 1 through 3 to be reminded of the pit from which God has called you out of. Amen? I assure you, if you understand what we were before Christ, you will sing about the blood of Jesus differently. So Paul lays out it's what Christ has done, and then he says this is ours. We saw it the last few weeks. We are now alive in Christ. We are seated with him. We are under grace. All the blessings that are now ours in Christ. What we were, what Christ did, what is now ours. I think there's a reality that's true for every single one of us in this room, and we're going to see this when we practice the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. In order for us to rightly rejoice and live out our calling in Christ, we must remember all that God has called us from. Paul does that here. He's going to do it again in verses 11 through 13 in just a minute. Sometimes we have to remember what it used to be like. I was thinking about this this week, a kind of a silly illustration. I, I don't know. Do you ever go back and look at old pictures? And I mean the kind that are actually on film, not the kind that are on your phone. I mean, the kind you have to pull out of the box and you look at. I was looking at some old pictures just a few days ago, and my family remember this. And I, I remember, I don't know if you ever do this, you look at old pictures and you say, ah, did I, did I really used to dress that way? And there was this picture pre-Jennifer of me, and I was wearing this 
turquoise nylon full jogging suit and I remember wearing that thing thinking it was the coolest thing in the world and I go back at pictures and I say heaven help me what was I thinking it makes me deeply grateful for when my life was transformed by a person named Jennifer who would now say to me, you're not wearing that out of the house. Amen. Remembering what we were, remembering what used to be, enables us to rightly rejoice what God has done and what he's called us to now. So you see that pattern in the early verses of chapter 2, we're going to see that same pattern beginning in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Now I'm just going to tell you there's a ton here and we're, we're going to leave a lot untouched this morning. We're going to come back next week, talk about some of these specifics. I really just want to focus on the first few verses here. But again, Paul's going to follow the same pattern. He's going to say, remember what you were. He picks up this theme again. Go back to verse 10. This may not be on the screen, but verse 10, I, I want to read as... Paul's thought continues. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a theme that Paul's going to touch on here, and he touches on it in chapter 1 as well. He's not just speaking to a group of loosely affiliated individuals. He's speaking to a community of believers who says, now you have been recreated as a people, the, the people of God, the church. Paul's going to talk about that through the rest of chapter 2. We're not going to talk about it a lot this morning. But I want you to remember, when Paul says all of these blessings in the book of Ephesians, it's not just to the individual, it's to God's collective people, the body of Christ. He teaches us what does it look like to live out of that reality. And then he comes to verse 11, and he wants a particular group within the church at Ephesus to remember all that God called them out of. Verse 11 he says, therefore, remember, it's this theme, remember, that at one time, you Gentiles. So God's going to speak to a particular group within the church at Ephesus, the Gentile part of the church. Now, Ephesus is primarily a Gentile church, but there are Jews and Gentiles within the church. This is a glorious theme of the book of Ephesians that God has built his church by bringing these two groups that historically don't get along, Jew and Gentile, together into one body. It's a glorious reality of the greatness of God. Talk more about that specifically next week, but here he says, you Gentiles, I want you to remember something. Now, he's going to single out the Gentiles, the non-Jew, which I think is probably most of us in this room. And he says, I want you to remember what you were before Christ. Remember before Christ, you faced alienation in a couple different ways. You, you faced the social alienation. You see this play out throughout the book of Acts. You see this play out throughout history that the Jews, for the most part, and there's a lot of reasons for this, God set apart people for God's purpose, blessed by God, to be a blessing to others. That blessing had become a source of pride. And by the time you get to the New Testament, the Jew felt for the most part that all the blessings of God were just for them, not for the Gentile. 
In fact, you see this here in the wording in verse 11. He says, therefore remember that you at one time Gentiles, you Gentiles in the flesh, call the uncircumcision by what was called the circumcision. He said, you were slandered by the circumcision, that's the Jew, and it was not this term of endearment. It was a slander against you, you uncircumcised Gentiles. We're not sure you even have any place in the kingdom of God. And he says, you had this social alienation. Remember that. He goes on, he says, not only was there some social alienation, there was true spiritual alienation. You as Gentiles did not have the favor and all the benefits and all the blessings that were extended to the nation of Israel. You were outside of many of those blessings. He says, verse 12, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. He says, remember at that time, and again, before Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. And he sums it up and he says, remember, you had no hope and were without God in the world. Paul says, remember, that was your condition before Christ. You get the bad news and the correct diagnosis to these Gentile people being outside of the covenant people of God. There were blessings and benefits that God gave to Israel to extend to the Gentiles, but those who were outside of the commonwealth did not benefit from these blessings in the same way as Israel. And he says, you were outside of many of these things. He says, that's what you were, but I want you to see what God has accomplished. Verse 13, look at it with me. Remember how in the earlier verses he said you were dead in your trespasses, you were enslaved to sin, but God. Similar pattern here, he says, all these things you were outside of, you were alienated from. Verse 13, but now. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're going to focus on this verse this morning. There's so much in verse 13. Here's your big truth that flows out of verse 13 is this. Jesus' followers are brought near to God by His blood. It's a glorious reality in this verse. He says, you who were referred to historically as those Far off. Throughout the Old Testament, that's a phrase that's used of the Gentiles. You were far off. You were outside of the promises of God. You were outside of the covenant given to Israel. You were far off. But now, in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, Jesus himself. Now quickly, I want to show you these things that Paul lays out here. And again, sake of time, I want to do this very quickly. He says there were several things that were true of you. What, what did it mean you were alienated? What did it mean you were separated from all these things? Look with me. I'm going to give you a few big ideas. First one is this. In our sin, in our former state, we were separated from Christ. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, from the Messiah. From the Redeemer, from the Savior, from the hope. Paul's point here seems to be something like this. 
unlike Israel, the Gentiles had no promise of a Messiah or a Savior to come. Throughout the history of Israel, God promised there's one coming, there's one coming, there's a promised one, there's a Redeemer. He's coming to set everything right. He's coming to bear your sin. He's coming to reign over you as your king. Paul said to the Gentile world and the pagan religions of the Gentile world throughout history, there was no such promise given of a Savior. You were without any hope. There was no Savior. You were separated from the Messiah, from this hope. You see this play out in human history. You see this play out in a human history with no purpose and no plan and no destiny. Uh, all the pagan, idolatrous religions of the world that have sprung up in all the Gentile peoples throughout history are all characterized by fear and never trust. In fact, you can look at it this way. All the false religions of the world have one thing in common. There's plenty of things to do to try to make yourself right with some God, but no false religion of the world ever provides a Savior. None of them. None of them. just a few weeks, I'm going to have the, I think it's a privilege, I'm going to travel with a group of pastors and church planners, and we're going to travel to the largest, by population, Muslim nation in the world. And the day we get there, the next day begins a month of fasting called Ramadan. We're going to be there right in the middle of this festival and you're going to see all the human effort and all the human work of trying to cleanse oneself and trying to make oneself right so that you can know God by your own works. But within that worldwide system called Islam, there is no Savior. Paul seems to be referring to that of all the Gentiles that you were separated from Christ, from any promise of a Redeemer, of a hope of one who would be your sin bearer. He says within the people of Israel was the God of Israel and the promise of this Savior. Because outside of that you had no hope of a Savior. He goes on, he says, in our sin we were alienated from God's people. Look at verse 12 again, what does that mean? Now there's so much here to explain, but I want to do my best, best to hit it really quick this morning. Verse 12, he says, remember that you were alienated, verse 12, from the commonwealth of Israel. What did that mean? Very quickly, that redemptive history, Old Testament primarily, God chose to focus his redemptive activity on a particular people, the, the nation of Israel, not because they were better, not because they were righteous. He said, you were a mess, but I chose to love you. And through the nation of Israel, God would bless, give promises, give a promised Messiah, give his word, not just for Israel, but for the nations of the world. And by knowing Israel, you would know the God of Israel. There would be this identity with God's people and therefore know the God of Israel and all his promises and all his blessings. Here he says to you Gentiles, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no identity whatsoever with the people of God. You were alienated from that. He goes on, he says, not only that, he says, next big idea, in our sin we were strangers to God's promises. Verse 12, remember that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. 
word covenant we talked about in Hebrews last year. You can think of the word covenant as this, a promise. An unshakable promise from God to his people. Throughout redemptive history, over and over and over, God extended unshakable promises to his people. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, on and on. Primarily the new covenant that is fulfilled in Christ. He says, but outside of that, outside of the people of God, you Gentiles knew nothing of the promises of God. You knew nothing that God had extended. You had no identity with his people. You had no identity of the blessings and the promises that he extended to his people to bless and prosper and multiply and save and redeem. You were outside of that. You're alienated from that. And then he kind of sums it up here in verse 12, or the end of verse 12. He says, remember that you were, uh, in our sin, we were hopeless and godless. Paul says, you want me to just sum it all up? You had no hope. You had no true God. You had no true Redeemer. You were hopeless and godless. Verse 12, remember that you were having no hope and without God in the world. No promised Savior. No promises. No identity with the people of God. It was a hopeless state. And then with all of that, you come again to verse 13. Paul says, I've got to tell you the true diagnosis of what you were so that when we get to the remedy that is in Christ, there will be rejoicing because you'll understand the pit from which you came out of. Verse 13, what has Christ accomplished but now? In Christ, you who once were far off, who's that? All Gentiles is who he's particularly referring to, have been brought near. And that's a phrase over and over in the Bible to talk about brought into the very presence of God. You've been brought near one way, not by your ethnicity, not by your good deeds, not by your efforts. One way, the sacrificial atoning death of the Son of God. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The glorious proclamation to the Gentile that every spiritual benefit is now theirs, ours in Christ Jesus. There's no more of this alienation or hostility that somehow as a Gentile I'm left out. I'm not welcomed in. He says in Christ now the church, every spiritual blessing is equally available to the Jew and to the Gentile. You who were far off have now been brought near only through the blood of Christ. Hey, we sang it earlier. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Yeah. This verse is just one of those verses I encourage you to pray through and meditate on. He says, verse 13 again, who is this for? Who is this promise for? We said it. He says, you who once were far off, the beginning of the verse. Remember, if you, you read through your Bible, you know that throughout the Old Testament and even in portions of the New Testament, the Gentiles are referred to as those who are far off. Isaiah 43, 6, Isaiah 49, 12, Acts 2, 39. And the notion for so long, and you see this play out even in the early church of the book of Acts, was can the Gentile who is far off really experience and know the blessings of the God of Israel? Is that possible? And the answer is, of course, yes. 
Even Peter, when he makes his message at Pentecost and he proclaims the gospel, says this. This is Acts 2.39. He says this promise of a Messiah that is now here is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. You who are far off have been brought near. Ephesians 2.17, we'll get here next week. Paul says this, and he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Who's this promise for? Those who were far off that have been brought near in Christ. What is gained? Look back at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. You write your Bible, mark that. It's used throughout the Bible to be this idea of you are now fully reconciled, enjoying full access, unhindered communion with God Almighty in a perfect love relationship because of Him and who He is and what He's done. Verse 18 of Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You have gained a right standing, a reconciled relationship with God, and you have now gained a right standing, reconciled relationship with this new community called the church. You're reconciled with God and you're reconciled with God's people. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Paul says, okay, how's all this possible? End of the verse. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? One way. By the blood of Christ. The only means for sinners to be reconciled to God and to his people is through the atoning sacrificial death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.17 says it this way, And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Watch this, that he might bring us to God. So Paul and this means that we would rightly rejoice and remember and live out of this rock-solid calling reminds us of what we were, alienated, outside of God's blessings, apart from Christ. But now we who were far off from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Before we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which has been given to us, the church, so that we will remember and rejoice the blood of Christ. Before we do that, let me, let me quickly just give you an illustration from Scripture of this idea of who, those who are far off being brought near. And then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a minute. You all remember the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? Yeah, yeah I remember that, kids. You, you remember that? Joshua and all the Israelites marched around Jericho and they blew the trumpets and the, the praise team sang and the walls cave in and all that. You remember, you still remember that, but there's maybe some elements of that story maybe you've forgotten. See, God had led his people, Israel, out of Egypt and they had 
been circling in the wilderness for 40 years. And now Joshua, the leader, Moses is dead. Joshua's going to lead his people into this land of promise that was given to God's people, Israel. And he says, go and go into the promised land. And God dried up the Jordan River miraculously and they crossed on dry land. He said, now you're going to go and you're going to take this land that is yours. But the first thing you're going to encounter is a city called Jericho. A Gentile city. Full of those who are far off from God. He says the city's under a curse. It's under the just wrath of God because of generation after generation of generation of wickedness. And you're to destroy this whole city in route to this land of promise that's yours. So he sends out spies and they go to the city of Jericho and they go in and they spy out the land. Remember the story? And as they're leaving, they need a place to hide. So they think, okay, nobody will notice if we go into this house, the house of a wicked prostitute named Rahab. So they go into this Gentile prostitute's house named Rahab who, watch, was a Gentile far off from God. And they go there and they tell what's going to happen and she says, oh, I know what's going to happen. She says this, I'm reading from Joshua chapter 2 verse two, uh, 10. You don't have to look it up. He says, she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came to Egypt. She said, we've seen your God's activity in your people and in your life. And we've seen his faithfulness. And we know that judgment's coming our way. She says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Listen to this. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth below. So what's the point? By watching God's activity in his people, Rahab wasn't impressed with the people of Israel. She was impressed with the God of Israel. And she said, now I know there is one true God. And this Gentile who was far off is placing faith in the God of Israel. So how do you know that? They said, we're leaving. The spies went out. She said, you have to have some way to signal when you come back for destruction that you'll deliver my family and me. And they said, hey, hang this scarlet cord from your window as a symbol of your faith and trust. The scripture says, when Joshua and the people of Israel came back, Verse 25 of chapter 6, But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, when they saw the scarlet cord hanging from her window, Joshua saved them alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua had sent out from the spies of Jericho. What's the point? Here's a Gentile, pagan, far from God, who saw God's activity among his people. She trusted in the God of Israel, and God delivered her, and she who was far off was brought near. That's the same for every one of you. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and just begin to play. We're going to move into a time of Lord's Supper, and you say, Pastor Mike, you're going to have to help me connect the dots there. I, I, don't, I don't have a scarlet cord. No. Throughout the Old Testament, there's picture after picture after picture after picture of trust in the God of Israel and the Savior that one day is coming. 
Scarlet cord represented that. The blood of the Passover represented that. Throughout redemptive history, there was a representation of that. And now, today, Paul declares to the church at Ephesus and declares to you and me, you who were far off now can be brought near. You've been brought near in one way by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we will never forget that. So that we as his people will always realize that we have been saved, not of our own works, not of anything we could accomplish, but only through what God has provided in Jesus through his blood. He's given us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. What does that mean? Jesus gave it to his Jewish disciples the night before his death that he said, do this in remembrance of me. It's a memorial. You do this to remember over and over and over. And in remembering, you'll never forget where you came and what is now yours in Christ. And the Apostle Paul took that same message from Jesus and he gave it to a Gentile church, those who had been far off in Corinth. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, and he says this, and I'll just read this again. prepare to take the Lord's Supper he says for I received from the Lord what I had also delivered from you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me the same way he took the cup after supper and this cup is the new covenant those who were far off now been brought near were brought into the very covenant this new covenant in the blood of Jesus do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning, I'll give you a few minutes to prepare and what the Lord's Supper is intended to be, it's to remember. Maybe Ephesians will help you this morning that we will remember that we were dead. We were enemies. We were separated. We were guilty. We were apart from Christ. We were without any identity with God's people. But now, we can rejoice. We who were dead have been made alive. Amen. We who were guilty have now been reconciled to Christ. We are not outside. We are now the people of God, His church, Jesus, the cornerstone and the head. just a few minutes prepare right there in your seat and just in a spirit of prayer and worship recount remember all that you were and celebrate all that is now yours and how is that possible the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ which the Lord's Supper represents to help us remember if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus we invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us Parents, again, great opportunity for your children, not your unbelieving children. It's not for them, but that's for you, an opportunity to continue to disciple them toward Christ. So just want you to bow your heads. Take a minute right there in your seat. Remember, call these things to mind, and prepare to rejoice as we take the Lord's Supper.